Isaac, Isaac, Isaac. Hello and welcome to Bombazo, the Scandinavian La Liga podcast where it is the weekend of Alexander Isaac, or at least that's the, the high point of the weekend for us on what has otherwise been a weekend that featured some pretty lowly games in Spain, with the odd exception. Uh, I'm Lee Roden, as always. I am with Alexander Jonsson, as always. Can we just admit that this was not the a vintage uh, overall, at least not the Sunday part of uh, the La Liga round? It wasn't the most fun. Uh, it was definitely not the most fun. I just want to point out here that the beautiful song that you got at the start of this podcast was supposed to come from Anueta, but the person that we asked to help us out to to record it kind of failed with the with this. I promised to do it the next game, though. Anyway, so instead you got Lee Roden's beautiful voice. I think it's pretty, yeah. pretty okay. It's a, it's a reenactment. I mean, we could pull the audio from the La Liga feed, but then I'm not sure about the copyright grounds of that and the fair use uh, laws. So I thought we could do a, an accurate reenactment, which I think uh, really puts you in there and gives you a feel for the atmosphere and some San Sebastian, which we will talk about later when we get to the, the nice part of the, <laughs> the podcast. The, the crap part is that, Jeez, man, what a low-scoring day it was on Sunday in La Liga. I had so much fun. I went to Balaidos early so that I could watch uh, Lega Atletico on my computer before the game started. So I made sure I could, could watch both games from start to finish. Um, and that was uh, four hours straight with zero goals, which was amazingly fun. Uh, not so much. Um, thankfully, which we're getting to, at least someone scored some goals. Uh, but overall... I think it took Huitafe were the first to score, and that was a penalty, I think. And fairly late in the game as well. It wasn't early on, was it? No, no, no. It was in the end as well. <sighs> it's not what we uh, norm when we talk about La Liga normally. It's about beautiful football, loads of goals. It's not really where game after game after game finishes. Well, is it though? And this is a thing that I've been thinking about in reaction to the weekend. I know a couple of people that. I follow her journalists have been pointing out that and I don't have the numbers in front of me to tell them whether it's true or not that there's a theme now where the games are generally lower scoring in Spain than they used to be and I think there is there's a feeling at least that that some of the teams there are a lot more teams in Spanish football now who are adopting a more cagey sort of defensive approach than there was 10 years ago I mean let's like rhyme off probably one of the worst games to watch the entire weekend Atletico Madrid against Leganes neither of those two teams are teams that you expect to go out there and really go for it and try to, to win games by by scoring more goals. Um, Getafe, ironically enough, being the team who did score out of uh, them and Real Betis, are generally a more defensive-minded team. And then you can keep going down through the table and you go by all the leading teams like that. So in a sense, I'm not that surprised that it happened. It makes sense that it happened, but it was not enjoyable to, to endure it happening well it did. And it's, it's not the first time it's happened either. But I think it's, as you say, I think it's more like there is this idea of La Liga because of what Leah used to be, that you always get loads of goals. And I mean, we have had games in, in the last season and, and this season as well with, with loads of goals. And if we take Betis, for example, um, they have previously, not so much this season, but previously been a team where you you will watch a game that ends 5-4 or 4-3 and, and, and things like that. And that's what has been a lot of in La Liga before. So that's kind of, I think, what a lot of people expect and still expect. But as you say, a lot of teams have changed in the way they play football. We have another team, which is uh, Eibar, who is in La Liga. We have uh, 
you could point out that we have several teams now that are smaller clubs with less resources resources that have um, in the last few years we have had new teams in La Liga that haven't played La Liga football before um, and the way kind of for them to cope is not to go all Paco Gemes uh, and try to, <laughs> to go offensive and, and score many goals and hope they score more than the other team because that's not how they're going to survive in a t- league that is so full of quality as La Liga. They have to play a smarter type of football and that also means less goals, I think. Yeah, it, it feels like we've got this squeezing effect as well where the smaller teams are getting a little bit better. They're getting mm-hmm. a little bit better prepared, maybe better coached or at least more risk averse coached and then the top teams are probably not quite as good so it's not that much of a surprise when you don't have like Guardiola's Barca or let's say Mourinho's Madrid when they were really good these teams aren't in the league anymore so it's not that much of a surprise that you're not seeing like 7-1 hammerings or whatever or 5-4 games and then also football in general is changing I think it's getting more and more physical more and more tactically prepared even the smallest clubs in the top leagues have so much analysis and so much preparation and that's certainly true in La Liga that they know pretty much everything. Every defender on the pitch knows pretty much everything about every attacker that he's playing against. He knows what way he likes to cut inside, what foot he favours, like what's the best way to show him. Probably means a natural result is that you don't get like crazy scorelines that you once used to. But I must say, I, I have a little bit of nostalgia though for the days when, when Marcos Senna was somehow considered to be a holding midfielder. A little bit of me kind of longs for those days, but football moves on and that's that's the way it is, right? I, I think it's, it's the development of football. Like football changes all the time and depending on like when Guardiola's Barcelona revolutionized the football world, that at that point, football had become a lot about defensive and tactics. Uh, and then he, his team came and kind of changed that. And then people have to, or teams have to adjust to that. And how do you uh, take points from a team like that? And how, and all the time, football is changing and changing depending on what is the norm, what is the best at the moment, and how can you compete with it? Uh, and I think, so we had a time there where we had a lot of, beautiful football or, or what to call it with a lot of goals um, and now we're getting into a period where the, the way to take points for the smaller clubs as we said from those teams is to to play a smarter type of football and then we get another type of result and it's going to keep on changing as time changes and as football develops it's all about football gets better and better and better all the time but in different ways i think it's true so uh are we ready to move on to what i think we can both agree was the absolute highlight of the weekend then yeah, so, well, I was at, as I said, at Balaidos. I watched a nil-nil game on my computer screen. I watched a nil-nil game in front of my eyes. I walked home feeling, come on, can I please get to see some goals today? Sat down uh, at home, put on the game. So I first half that ended nil-nil. I was like, is this going to happen all over again? But then there was a Swede, and I asked the Swede, can you please score today so I get to see some goals and uh, like he does, uh, Alexander Isak answered my prayers and we got a goal very early in the first half. This was one of those games, so Real Sociedad of Mallorca, where I was I was shouting at the TV screen in the first half. I was like, no, stop doing this because they were playing they were playing with Alexander Isak in the first half as if he was William Jose. So they were like firing the ball to him in the air and trying to use him like a target man. And he could do that to an extent, but it's not really his game. I think he wants the ball played to feet where he can link up a little bit more and then run off the last man into space. I don't know if uh, Emmanuel Alguacil was listening to me. I'm sure he's got a bug somewhere in my uh, in my apartment. But in the second half, he completely changed the way he used them. And then almost instantly, Real Sociedad come alive and he's like getting to link up with his teammates and then making the move, move a little bit faster than it was moving and cause more problems for Mallorca and he gets his goal. It's a complete different game in the second half. It's a completely different game. Absolutely. And I think that 
it's interesting because we we messaged about this um, off air as well. This was a game where Real Sociedad played some really nice attacking football in the second half, but it wasn't all going through Martin Erdegaard. I didn't feel like he defined their attacking play as much as actually the, the forward players did, like Porto, like Isaac. They were the people that kind of dictated the, the good attacking play for them, which was intriguing because it shows a different side to their game. And it shows how much talent they have in multiple positions, which is something you've been saying since the start of the season. Yeah, and I think... Uh, we- if we're talking about Alexander Isak, this was a really, really good game from him, especially the second half, as you said, when they actually started to use him the way he should be used, uh, not as Villan Jose. Um, and <clears throat> it was quite amazing when you were watching it as a Swede, because normally in Spain, at least, they don't really sing players' names that often in the stands. And then suddenly you, you hear entire Anoeta start singing Alexander Isak's name, both the, when he scored the goal, obviously, when the commentator says the first name and the, the fans the second name, but then also during the game when he did uh, some incredible things, the, the entire st- stadium interrupted in, in Isak chance and also when he was uh, substituted. And I think he, wa- he was substituted uh, in the 80th minute, I think, uh, which my guess with Real Sociedad leading 2-0, being in a pretty good position, I think the, the entire idea behind that was two things. Let him get his ovation from the fans, which he really deserved after that game, and to to make sure that that he doesn't get injured or anything, and, and to save his energy. You have Copa del Rey coming up against Osasuna, which is not going to be an easy game, and 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 so on. And he is your if William Jose, which we're going to get to in just a little second, is leaving, then Isaac is extra important for Real Sociedad to keep fit and everything. Uh, but just overall, it was such a brilliant game from Alexander Isaac, and also to come out and do that when he kind of have. I would say for the first time really this season, have the pressure on him in a way that he hasn't had before. Uh, because as speaking of Villan Jose, there is all these rumors about Villan Jose leaving Real Sociedad. He was left out of the squad for the Copa del Rey game in which Alexander Isak also scored um, and left uh, on the, in the stands for, for this game as well and not in the squad. Um, and what's interesting uh, is that Alexander Isak scored in both of these go- games. Mm. He's now scored... I think it is five goals in the league and three goals in, in Copa del Rey, which for your first six months in a new country, you're 20 years old, don't speak the language when you get there. Uh, the best league in the world when it comes to quality, one of the best performing teams in that league. Uh, I think that is quite extraordinary numbers. I It's really interesting because, so there's a number of things to, to mention here. Uh, but the, the first one was that I think early in the season, he, he wasn't timid. I wouldn't say he was shy, but I feel like he was playing within himself. He was still adapting, learning, trying not to take too many risks, playing a, a fairly straightforward game and just trying to get do what everyone should do when they join a new club, getting the good graces of your coach, earn his trust. But I feel like this last week, we've finally seen him really come into his own and you're starting to see the swagger that made him uh, so attractive for a lot of clubs when he was on loan in the Netherlands and why so many people wanted him when he was at Aiko in the first place. And it's insane looking at his numbers. So he's the top, scoring under 21 player in La Liga at present with five goals he's only started five games so he's got five league games and five league goals and five league starts he's got more than Ferran Torres at Valencia who everyone raves about got more than Joao Felix who's like the third most expensive player in the world I mean that's really impressive how often do you get to say that about a player coming from from a country like Sweden to, to La Liga not often at all but apart from the the goal itself 
I mean, I love the goal and I love his celebration as well because it's almost that classic, like, uh, Spanish, you know, aquí soy yo, like, this is bad. He sort of stood up and soaked in the ad- adoration of the crowd. But the, the moment that defined his game for me was his dribble. You know the one I mean. There's that dribble, like, a little bit later after the goal where he sort of played a pass in a nothing position on the edge of the box where there's two players around him, I think. And I'm thinking, oh, he's going to he's gonna go back. He'll take the ball, play it back to the fullback or something like that. And instead, he, like, somehow manages to turn away from two players, burst forward and then, like, chips the ball and to the box and it's actually not that far off being a pretty decent ball for a for a header on goal as well and that was to me was like that was significant because that's we know that he's capable of that we've seen him doing that before we've seen him doing it in sweden we've seen him doing it in the netherlands but i think probably a lot of people in spain don't know that he's capable of doing that and they probably just see him as and a little bit like the way they were playing with him in the first half, this sort of tall, fairly quick striker, you know, typical number nine. But mm-hmm. he's not that kind of player. He's much more than that. He has much more of his game. And now he's starting to to feel comfortable enough to express that side of his talent. I think it's going to be uh, really positive for him. And especially considering the, the pressure that we were talking about. There was no real pressure. There was some pressure on him in the first half of the season, but not really. He wasn't a starter um, and credit to Imanol Alguacil as well for the way he's used them because he's eased them into this team gradually and now he's ready evidently for this moment which is particularly important because of what's going on with William Jose who who knows what will happen maybe maybe he leaves maybe he doesn't but I think if he stays he stays as a as a bench player now I don't think that he's that can be benched after this and I just also commentating on, on what you were saying that it might not be as surprising for us might be more more surprising for for people who watch La Liga regularly but haven't watched Alexander Isak before uh, I really found it interesting and and great to hear Porto, which both of we were commentating about yesterday, we even posted it twice on, on our Twitter account. Uh, what Porto said after after the game against uh, about Alexander Isak, where he said that that for us this is not really surprising because we see him do these kind of things in training every day. Um, so so we know that he can do this. Like we're we're not surprised about what Alexander Isak did today. Uh, but he, I think in in Spain a lot of people, as you say, were surprised. And I think also that it was such a bad football day in general made it pop out even more. <clears throat> and and people were really really take, ta- taking note and talking about Alexander Isak uh, Isak here yesterday. And and that's quite a co- cool to see. But. <clears throat> Uh, moving on to to the entire William Jose because it's it's quite an interesting situation and I think it's easy for some people to just say that it's good for Alexander Isak if William Jose leaves because it means he becomes first choice. Uh, but at the same time, this uh, I, I think we have a little bit of the same opinion on this and that it's not as black and white. It's quite grey and William Jose at Real Sociedad I think have been brilliant for Alexander Isak. The situation it's been this season, I think, has been as good as it could be. And also the way that Imanol ha- have been using it, as you said, giving him little by little, and now it's now he's ready. Um, and having Villan Jose there, and both of them being so different type of players, it's not like they are in one way, I don't think they, are, they have been competing directly with each other because they're so different type of football players. So we've seen that uh, even though Vina Jose has been the first choice in some games, Imanol has decided to start Alexander Isak straight out of a tactical point of view because he's been the player that fit against that opponent better. Also, what I find quite interesting is that I saw that... Um, that Vina Jose is the most subbed player in La Liga this season, which speaks a lot about Alexander Isak because he's the one who subbed him. And I think Isak played a total of 21 games or something like that, even if he's only started five. So he's been playing a lot. And even though Villan Jose has been the first choice, it's not been as cut the first choice. It's been 
varied quite a lot between them that Vinacos has been the one starting. Alexander Isak has often come on quite early on, I would say, in the second half. So he's gotten playing time. Um, and the both of them, I think, have made each other better because I think Villajose this season has been completely different to Villajose last season. Last season, he had ups and downs and there were some times where he was brilliant and sometimes where he was like he didn't exist. This season, he's had to be on his toes the entire season because Alexander Isak has been just right there behind him. Um, and also, as we said before, having Villajose in front of him in that sense have made that Isaac didn't get that pressure on him from the start, which means that he's been able to take his time to adapt, been able to get into the team, uh, got on the good side of everyone, of the coach, and slowly been taking his spot. And either if Villa Jose goes or leaves now, I think in one way it's a brilliant situation that Isaac is, especially the way he's reacted in these two last games with coming in and scoring when Villa Jose has not been there, uh, the love he's getting from the fans. The interesting part here is going to see what happens now. Is Villan Jose staying? What does that mean with them, as you say, likely having switched spots in the sense of who's the first and who's the second choice? Will Villan Jose leave and who comes in? Because if he leaves, they need a replacement because you can't not, cannot just have one striker. There's been talk about Llorente and about Stuani as being the, the main two that, that La Real are looking at, with Llorente being their first choice, um, uh, Stuani being their second. Uh, with Llorente, there, there's been a lot of talk about Llorente before with Real Sociedad because his wife is from Donostia. She wants to move back to San Sebastian and there is a really good connection there. So he would like to, to come back if, if it's possible. And they've had contacts before, so they've basically taken them up again. And the second one is Toani, someone they looked at before, uh, which Lee is totally against. <laughs> Uh, nodding his head. Don't I, I just have a, just don't even call him. It's probably best you don't even call. Don't call his agent. Just let leave him be. He's happy in Girona. I think Lee wants Girona to uh, to keep the goal scoring machine. Uh, but yes, that that's like the interesting part now because and what does that mean if any of these players come or any other player and will that change the dynamic? Because you can say that okay, he's not been the first choice, but there's been a really good dynamic I think between. Isaac and Villan Jose and the way they've been switching and the harmony of the club and the luxury problem of having two players who are both in form and both scoring goals. So it is. Not, I don't think it's as we, as I said before, black and white. That it necessarily is fantastic for Alexander Isaac if Villan Jose leaves because it can actually. You never really know with football and the player coming in and how that changed the situation. I think it's been a very good where they've been now, and I also think the idea. Uh, in the back of the mind of, of Imanol, depending on how Alexander Isak does, is that he should be the first choice come next season because he's the young, he's the uh, re- really talented and progressing and, and performing. And that he might, like, this is the season more for him to get into it, adapt, and now breaking through. Uh, and then little by little, maybe next season was time for him to be the big man uh, in another way. And I think it changes a little bit the dynamics if uh, with everything that's happening now. Yeah, and beyond this uh, club situation, I've actually been thinking about if this form continues for Isaac, which I, I think there's no reason to to presume it won't or that he won't score more goals. There's a pretty decent chance that he he hits like double figures in front of goals this season in all competitions now. I think, and more so if he's uh, if he's starting more often, then he has even greater an opportunity because he's got more time to do it. But I'm, I'm I've been getting to ponder what this means for Sweden and the, the European Championship this summer because for so long Jan Andersson has stuck with Marcus Barry because that's his pick for what he likes tactically. 
up front. He he tried starting Alexander Isak up front in one of the latter qualifiers before the at last few months of the qualifying stages last year. Uh, and it didn't quite work out the way he'd wanted in some of the games. So he went back and said, well, see, I told you, look, you know, that's it's not always that clear and different tactical styles require different kinds of players. But if Alexander Isak ends a season with, you know, let's say 10 La Liga goals, let's say, will be really ambitious. 10 La Liga goals, 11 La Liga goals. It's almost impossible for Jan Andersson to then turn around and say, you know, you're not going to start for Sweden. Uh, instead, I'm going to play this old guy who's playing at a really low level. No disrespect at all, but I mean, just the cold hard facts, you've got a guy scoring goals in one of the best leagues in the world. But then that creates a whole dilemma as well, because then does Sweden have to change the way they play? Because it's a different thing to, to play with Marcus Barry as it is to play with Alexander Isak. So, so much uh, is really dependent upon what happens in these next few months with uh, with Alexander Isak, with William Jose, with Real Sociedad. That could determine a lot of how things go, not just at club level, but also at international level for him in the, the near future, I think. And even though we, we love speaking about Alexander Isak and we could probably go on doing that for the entire episode, uh, let's move on. Uh, and from that, take a quick roundup of the Scandi players this weekend. So we already covered Alexander Isak. I think he played 80 minutes. He scored. He was a star of the, not just of the game, I think, but in, in some ways of the entire La Liga round, especially the, the Sunday, the boring Sunday. Um, but uh, in his team, we, t- you, we touched a little bit on Martin Odegaard as well. Not his best game. He played all 90 minutes. Uh, he obviously didn't have a horrible game or a bad game. He's, he's consistent. He's always good. Uh, but he might not. He wasn't the, the star or where everything went through like he's been in, in other games. Um, our Dane at Leganes in the very, very fun nil-nil match, uh, Brathwaite, he played uh, 90 plus minutes. It was, I think, 99 minutes in total in the end. <laughs> it was a crazy ending to that game. Um, but he, uh, he had a really, really good chance in the first half, I think after only 13 minutes, where he really, really tested All Black, uh, which might have been the best chance for Leganes all game. But in general, uh, it was not a lot happened in that match. Uh, there wasn't a lot of chances there, and so not a lot from the day either. Uh, Daniel Vaz played 90 minutes as Valencia defeated Barcelona uh, in a very, very good way. Uh, I think uh, Vaz is, again, on the right back. I think he is, is finding his way, especially in the defensive game and doing really well defensively. Where he is lacking a bit is in the offensive game. It sometimes feels like he's playing it a little bit safe and don't go for instead instead of, of getting a quick pass he, he will turn back and pass it so there is definitely uh, room for improvements but again it's it's not the position he before at least have preferred to be playing in and then we're gonna end with a guy we have to talk a little bit about which is Pion Assisto at Celta de Vigo it was it was crazy the, the it was like a um, up and down, uh, how he went for Pione's sister when, when Celta played nil-nil against Eibar. So he's been benched for the last two games, a Copa del Rey game where he came on and scored, and the league game before then, which not all Celta fans have been very happy about because he's been one of the best performing players in a not very good Celta. So he was back in the starting eleven today, and it really, really felt like he had something to prove. He was playing from the start I think he was playing really really good he was one of the most outstanding players for Celta in a game where to be fair I think Celta played a lot better than they've done for for most parts of the season and it felt like they they're actually on something in this game uh, which made the result I think even more frustrating for them uh, but anyways the sister was behind most things and especially in the first half he was like creating he was all over the pitch uh, he actually 
started on the left uh, wing, switched to the right. Um, I was, I think I had a heat map I posted on, on Twitter, which just shows that he was literally on the entire, uh, all over the entire pitch. And he did a really, really good, good game, which made me kind of surprised. Balaid was very surprised, and a lot of people surprised when uh, Oscar Garcia decided to sub him off already after 61 minutes. So, like, very early on in the second half to take on uh, Toro Gabriel Fernandez, which in I, I understand the tactical view behind it. I understand getting Toro on as because they couldn't, they didn't manage to finish off to get a bit of a taller player, a bit of a target man, and get another way of playing, open up a little bit more for Iaguaspas. Uh, I think they should have taken on off Santimina, who was not having a good game, instead of the guy who was perhaps the guy who played the best football on the pitch uh, that Sunday. Uh, Balaidos whistled the, the, the substitution when Sisto went off. Not, not whistling Sisto, like whistling Oscar Garcia for doing that substitution because they literally don't understand why are you taking off our best player. Sisto didn't understand why he was being taken off either. Uh, so he, and he showed that very clearly which got Oscar Garcia furious. So Oscar went over and had a real, um, just shouting down uh, Sisto on TV. Everyone saw it. Not the way I think you, you should handle a situation like that. In the press conference afterwards, uh, uh, Oscar was asked about the situation and said that he, like every player is obvi obviously is upset when they get substituted. It was tactical reasons. Uh, but you should not be showing that for entire world to see, especially not. And this is the thing. He said, especially not when you know where you were a few months ago before I arrived or somewhere along those lines, which I don't really think is the way to handle the situation. Uh, so there's a few things to tackle here. Firstly, Pionicisto is playing really, really good football at the moment. Oscar Garcia has a point in the sense, even though he should not be saying that, that Sisto was out in the cold when he arrived at the club. And he's kind of flourished uh, since he came back. Uh, but the entire way the situation was handled, I think, from both the player and from the coach, I also saw Sisto posting uh, Instagram posts later in the evening where he basically wrote that uh, he loves football and that's why he got so angry because he felt that he could really win this game with the team. No apologizing or anything like that, just pointing out that I really felt that I could have won this game had I stayed on. Uh, which doesn't help the situation either. Uh, so it's a very, very tricky situation because he's one of the best performing players, but there is obviously not the best relationship between player and coach. I think, as I said, Oscar didn't handle it the right way. I don't think Sisto handled it the right way. What is interesting as well is, as we've talked about before when it comes to Pione Sisto, is that he often starts really well under a new coach. Then he often ends up out in the cold at some point. Uh, there is no no surprise, and everyone knows about it, that he is has a special type of personality and isn't the easiest person to handle with for, for different reasons. What I found interesting during this game as well was, as I said, he was perhaps the best player on the pitch for most part of the game, but Oscar was not the only one that got really furious with him. Another one who did that was Iaguaspas during the match where I, I don't think AI Waspas had a point because it was a situation where he wanted, well, several situations where he was frustrated with Sisto, but one was where he wanted a pass and instead Sisto went for a shot. And it was really close to actually being goal. I think Sisto took a okay decision. But the, the reaction of AI Waspas, and even though he's a very temperamented guy, but 
the explosion and like his head almost exploding and the way he was screaming at Sisto, who again was having a really good game. He wasn't playing badly. Just makes you wonder like, is there any underlying to this frustration where, because at the same time, I also don't think that the reaction from Oscar was, even though what Sisto did when walking off wasn't okay, that reaction was a little bit over the top. So is there any frustration coming on from something that we don't know about that makes it even them even more frustrated over the smallest things. And what does this mean for Sisto? Does this mean that he's going to keep on in the starting 11 because he's playing really good football? Or does his reaction and how he's handling stuff and his personality means that maybe he's, he's getting into the cold again? It's a delicate situation for everyone because when you're down at the bottom and the bottom three, everything's so fragile. Confidence is so fragile in particular that even the slightest move the wrong way can ruin things for a player. But... Bizarrely, I think this weekend in the end, because uh, Mallorca lost so badly as well, it, it didn't work out that badly for Celta in the end. It would have been much better if they won, but it's still so mm-hmm. tight down there. The fact that I think they've not lost in three now in the league or something like along those lines. So it's tight enough that they only need now one result to go their way and one ro- result to go badly for Mallorca for, for things to change quite quickly. So I think it had had uh, had Mallorca picked up a, a point or even more at um, Anahueta, which considering what they did to, to Valencia was never, not a guarantee it wouldn't have happened, then maybe all of this would be magnified even more. But I think the, the way results have fallen in general means it's probably not as... Uh, as, as bad as it could seem even though god they need to start winning games i mean that's the thing although it's better to be better to be drawing than losing if you're not going to be winning and i, I think when it comes to self at the moment it's it's so so much psychological because like i said yesterday you see the football is getting better and better all the time and sometimes they, they have the moments of complete brilliance as well in what they do but they just can't score the goals and when you can't score the goals and you can't win the games the frustration keeps on the men- mental part gets worse and worse and worse. But I think in general, what they really need is to get in some signings this uh, this winter, uh, get in some fresh air, uh, probably get in some someone who starts scoring goals. Speaking of uh, delicate situations and coaches, um, I get the impression, I don't know about you, but I feel like maybe for more so than ever before that we're finally starting to see some people question whether Diego Simeone's magic at Atletico Madrid might be starting to wear off. Um, they're now outside of the top four, which is horrific, really. Um, and a weekend that they that could have been them cutting the, the gap on Barcelona and at least restaking a claim for somehow competing with the, the second place team in La Liga, if you like. Instead, it turns out to be them falling behind the, the chasing pack even further to the extent where they're now no longer <laughs> the in the top three or the top four in La Liga. If you think that's bad already for them, which it is, have a listen to some of their fixtures coming up. So Atletico Madrid have the Madrid Derby next week away to Real Madrid, who are playing their best football in a long time, I would say. Then they have Granada at the Wanda, which in theory we think is not that bad, but it tends to be in these games against smaller teams this season that they're particularly struggling. They're struggling to create things, they're struggling to to break through sides. Then they have Valencia away at the Mestalla on the 15th of February. Then they have Liverpool in the Champions League. It's a horrific run, and that's not to say that's... I mean, they got Sevilla, for example, in March, and then the return leg of the Champions League. They've got a really tough run of fixtures coming up and they're playing awfully i mean the leganes game is 
comfortably the worst that I've seen Atletico Madrid play for a long time. And there's plenty of competition in that regard, by the way, because they've played some pretty bad games, not just these, this season, but in the last few years. And it's getting to the extent now where I'm, I'm wondering because in a way, I feel like Diego Simeone for a lot of this season has been protected by this point of the summer of transition that we've been talking about, by the, the fact that all these new players came in, so they're going to need time to settle and it's going to take a while. But then it got to the point where, especially this weekend, I was saying, okay, now we're, we're more than halfway through the season. You've had quite a long time to work with these people. So what progress has been made? with them and it's very hard to look at a single member of that squad who's actually improved this season or has made any kind of uh, development full stop that's not been negative some players who who looked like were going to be good for them have gone back the way Lodi who started the season really well has not been particularly great he's been quite subdued and contained they've had some injury problems that's true but at which point do you have to start asking well the, the person who's in charge should be doing more and I was thinking maybe you can answer this for me because I've been it's a thought that's been revolving around my head if we had to take this this Atletico Madrid squad that right now with the amount of talent they've got and give it to let's say I don't know Mauricio Pochettino would you permit the way they've been playing up until this point this season or would you ask questions of them is Simeone's name protect them here a little bit i think it definitely is and i i do also think to be honest that it's rightly do so because the thing is the things what he's done with atletico madrid he kind of deserves to get that extra time that maybe a coach uh who hadn't already revolutionized the entire club and done what Simeone has done uh, would have deserved so like for me personally i agree with everything you're saying um I would still want to see Simeone get at least season out uh, and then do, do go through everything from there on and see is, is he the right man to carry on or not. And probably he isn't because he, he's the man, right? Maybe he, he was the right man to do the revolution with Atletico Madrid. Maybe he's not the right man to do the evolution with, with Atletico Madrid, which is what they need now uh, because of obviously the change of players and, and everything and to, to keep up with, as I said, as we talked about before, football is constantly changing and you have to kind of change with it. And Atletico Madrid has been stuck for, for a while. I've still felt before this and need this evolution, but maybe Simeone is not the right man to, to actually do it. Yeah, I think a lot of the players at his disposal are... The tools at his disposal have improved from what he was given at the very beginning. Or in some cases, that's not the case because, you know, anyone would take a your peak 2014 Diego Costa right now, of course. But for the most part across the squad, if you look at some of the people who were filling in as like the backup players in those early teams, they wouldn't get anywhere near this current Atletico Madrid squad. Um, and then there's also this th- thing in the background, a few signs that you start to believe, hmm, you know, like Saul saying, oh, you know, people shouldn't think they're entitled or that they know everything already that they need to work, you know, Suggestions that in the dressing room is not quite right the way it should be. Then there's murmurs that Mono Burgos is maybe thinking about moving on and becoming a, a first team coach, um, a head coach, which again suggests there's this sort of small feeling of an end, era, end of an era. Um, and now, like the the impression you get from the messages that the club are sending, both like explicitly and subliminally is that everything kind of hinges on them them getting Edison Cavani before this window closes and him suddenly turning them into a really good attacking team which again I mean poor guy because if you look at how Morata's playing right now he's spending most of his time right in front of his own box it's a hard 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 ass to expect someone to then run the full length of this the pitch and score to be fair I think that Morata has had been quite good this season yeah. and done really well con- considering the situation considering how Atleti have been playing 
I think so. All right, but we, we've we've ran over this theme a million times and no doubt it's something that we'll keep going with, especially considering those games that uh, I mentioned before coming up. There's some huge fixtures with Atletico involved, so they'll naturally be a subject of discussion. But one thing we mentioned before we when we were pulling together the ideas for this week is that we both sort of arrived at the same conclusion as we don't really talk about Valencia very much and maybe it's time to do that considering the result that they took at the weekend beating Barcelona 2-0 and could have been three actually if penalty was not saved uh, by Marc-Andre Ter Stegen. So time to give a little bit of credit to Los Che, right? Yeah, 100%. But it was it's quite interesting because I was just about to send you a WhatsApp message basically saying that we have to talk about Valencia this weekend. We never talk about Valencia. This needs to change. And before I did that, I got a message from you saying we have to talk about Valencia. <laughs> so um, it, I think we, we really need to talk about Valencia, Lee. Hmm. And I, I think, I, I almost think I know why we haven't spoken about them. And it's because yeah, Valencia has not really been that dramatic this season. They've been kind of stable somewhere in the middle. I really expected it would be a disaster when the plug was pulled on Marcelino so early into the season. Um, and especially when Albert Solades, who doesn't have that much experience of note, was put into the job. I was thinking, okay, this is classic Valencia. We're going to get another Gary Neville situation where they somehow go from being like fourth place in Copa del Rey champions to like down the bottom. But hey, they got out of their Champions League group, which was a death group fairly comfortably they're very much within touch and distance of the the champions league spots and you have to say in general that their their season is on track for being a very very good year so far so applause to them 100 and it is uh it is not easy being valencia and it's not easy coaching valencia i think uh this is something even though we haven't spoken a lot about valencia i think we have touched on it at some point that valencia is such a complex football club in the sense that there is so much going on outside of the football itself that affects it. And there's always, as you said before, it's, it's always Celtics around Valencia, uh, which makes, at the same time, there's this huge pressure on Valencia because I don't think there is any club in Spain or there definitely isn't any club in Spain after the, the big two, the big three, that where the pressure is as high as it is in, on, in Valencia uh, because of the past, because of their history, history, but also because they always have really good players. Even when they are have had bad season, even when they play horrible, they normally have a really, really good squad. So there's players that you have a lot of expectations on. And then you have a fan base who knows what it's like to actually win stuff and wants to be up there and expect their team to always be to be the team that can come up and compete with with the big teams in in this league table. So it's the pressure for anyone coaching Valencia is huge, while the the club and the situation makes it very very difficult in in many many ways. I think for any of our listeners who haven't been to Valencia before, it's Spain's third city, but it's it's a big city. I mean, when you go there, you get the feeling that you're in a big city. It's as big mm-hmm. as any of the capitals of any of the Scandinavian countries, for example. It's got, you know, a very distinct, like, Valencian feel. It doesn't feel like Barcelona, it doesn't feel like Madrid. It has its, very much its own characteristic, and the people who are from there are very much proud Valencians. Their identity starts with that place, nothing else. So for, for the people who are fans of the, you know, the dominant, by a distance dominant club in the city, for a team who they've seen playing in Champions League finals, who they've seen winning European trophies, who they've seen beating Barcelona and Real Madrid, to league titles it's natural that there's a a huge sense of expectation on them as well and I think that it's sometimes easy to forget that when you look from the outside looking in you can and I have a a tendency to do this that you can look at like what Valencia's sort of overall trophy tally is if you like and be like okay yeah so they're they're fairly successful but you know they're not you know they're not Barcelona Madrid they're not even Atleti but no within within recent memory within the last couple of decades they've been one of the biggest clubs in Europe and when it's already 
the biggest club in your super, super, super strongly identified city, that magnifies it even more. And I feel like this it's almost impossible to not fail when you're in charge of Valencia because you're never, ever, ever going to quite meet the expectations because there's always that one step further you should be able to go. I mean, I, I was too young at the time, but I'm sure there were people when Rafa Benitez was in charge who were saying, yeah, this is great, but why are we not winning the Champions League, you know, for example? So it's, it's a, a hugely, hugely, hugely demanding, special, unique club. And well, as we were saying before we went on the air, I think it deserves that we should take some time to really go through that thoroughly in a dedicated episode with some people who are from there or who live there and really understand it because it's fascinating. I think it's probably arguably the most fascinating club in Spain because it's really like nothing else. Yeah, for sure. So, and we're definitely going to go more more deep on Valencia because the, there's also, as we, we talked about before we, we started recording this podcast, that there is a big interest for Valencia in Scandinavia as well, which is also something that is interesting to, to go into detail to why is, is Valencia of all clubs so popular among Scandinavians and, and what historic uh, do we have there as well? And also what makes Valencia and, and this football club so different? Because if you if you look the last couple of years, they go up and down and they are very chaotic in, in many ways and they can be at their best among the best teams and at the worst they can lose against anyone and play some really horrible football, which I've seen um, with my own eyes and it's not very pretty. So it can go very, very, very different ways. But if you look at where they normally position themselves in the league table, the teams that are around them, I think it's very different. As you said, the, the pressure on these clubs are very, very different because if you take, even though we talk about Real Sociedad or if we talk about Salta a few years ago when they were up there as well and, and many of these other clubs, there is pressure on them as well in, another, in a way. They have fans and all this, but Valencia... As you were saying, it's more in like one of the, the big, big clubs in the sense of what's going on around the club. Um, so they're not at the same level in the type of, of the expectations and pressure that is on that club every single season, no matter how they did last season. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like a you can never win <laughs> situation <laughs> exactly. for them. Um, but yeah, we'll come back to Valencia in some real proper detail. We're starting to already plan that because I think it'll be a, a subject that will be that will bear a lot of fruit when we get into it properly. Um we're going to close out the, the show, I guess, by looking at probably the most, I was going to say boring, not boring is not the word I mean, like the, that's almost like a swinglish thing to say, but like the the kind of saddest thing to come out from the weekend, which I guess a lot of people have already come across, which is the, the racial abuse targeted uh, in Yaki Williams Athletic Club's forward. I, I must say it's, it's nice to see that La Liga saying that as a consequence of this, they uh, they want to seek a partial stadium closure at um, Espanol's ground. I think that's positive because that shows some sense of action, though I do almost worry or, or question why why this wasn't picked up or dealt with during the actual game itself um, against Espanol when we've already seen for those who don't know a Rayo Vallecano match being suspended because their fans were chanting um, suggesting that an opposition player might have connections to the neo-Nazi movement and that led to a game being suspended so I think you could you could reasonably ask why that kind of action is not taken when an, an act of racial abuse or apparent racial abuse is clear racial abuse now everyone's seen the videos happens um, I, we have to tread carefully with this subject right but I, I would say that I feel like some La Liga clubs could have done more 
to try and cut this stuff out, out over the last 10 years when because it's only really in the last 10 years that most clubs in Spain have really made an effort to try and deal with it I think some clubs and maybe we don't have to name names or maybe we do but like some you and I have been to a lot of games in Spain we spent a mm-hmm. lot of time around a lot of uh, fans of Spanish football clubs and for me and I speak for myself there's no doubt I know the clubs that, that I've been to where I've seen you know I watched a, even with a Peña of one of the big clubs in Spain that I watched in London let's say it was a Champions League final between two teams in Spain and let's see it say a black player scored an extra time and I've seen the the reaction to that with racial uh, abusive chanting and taunting and I've seen the ultras of that same club doing the same thing at games or unfolding fascist flags when it comes to Espanol it's a personal experience but I was at the Barcelona derby last season at Gornaya and uh, you won't have seen this on TV because obviously the TV directors are very careful with what they, they show you in the stadiums in Spain but when the the anthem started um, a significant portion of the Espanol fans unfolded uh, fascist era Spain flags which anyone who lives in Spain they know what that is they can identify it instantly when they see the eagle on it and and they weren't taken away they, they stayed there for the duration of the game or as long as they wanted to so i don't know i i, I, feel, I just feel like it, we should put pressure on on clubs all clubs to do something about this kind of stuff but especially the ones who aren't doing enough and when i look at like espanol's apology i don't know if you saw this but on twitter they were they apologized for it but then but also felt the need to mention in their apology that you know and it was only a minority of our fans like well fine yeah but just fucking apologize for it man and do something about it stop trying to shift the blame off already and try to find an excuse and i don't know it frustrates me it's like that already it feels like when these things happen that the first step is like how can we defend ourselves how can we make this seem like it's not our problem instead of actually addressing the problem itself but then maybe i'm naive maybe i expect too much no but i, I completely agree i think it's it's a problem that been for quite a few few years in spain or for many many years in spain and i did a few years ago uh i don't know if you remember with uh, when that uh, ultras fight happened in Madrid, uh, where uh, between Depor and Atletico Madrid fans, which ended with the, the death of one of the Depor ultras who was thrown into the river mm. and everything like that. Uh, I remember I did an article about ultras in Spain and did quite a lot of, of research on it and uh, tried to, to understand the, the situation and everything. Um, and like like you said, some clubs have, have dealt with it. They haven't dealt with it until they were kind of forced to deal with it in the sense of social media started to arrive and mm. it actually started to look back bad at the clubs. And what I realized when I was doing this, this research is that the entire thing with ultras in Spain, to start with, in, in Sweden at least, and I guess in Scandinavia in general, ultras is a word that is normally uh, means hooligans mainly. mainly. While in Spain, the word ultras uh, for at least a very long time has just meant the most dedicated fans in the stadium. It's taken from Italian football, uh, from I think it was in the 80s, uh, during the, when, when Spain had the World Cup, they, they realized that you can create atmosphere at football games because the, the fans from, from other countries uh, came to this country and, and showed it. And from there, the, the culture of ultra culture kind of started in Spain. And... It also brought the good things and the bad things. And I think different clubs got different uh, amount of, of the different things. But what is the interesting part in Spain is that in many clubs, the clubs have helped ultras because they want to have atmosphere at their games. And in Spain, you don't have the same type of atmosphere that we, for instance, have at, at football games in Scandinavia um, that we've seen in, in a lot of other countries. And to get the atmosphere to the football games is something that every club kind of wants and and it helps uh, the players and such as well so i think in many cases sadly 
clubs in this country have helped uh, the, these type of groups, even though they do things like this, um, some of them, and act like this because they want that atmosphere in, in the stands and they're afraid what happens if we ban these people are we going back to have quiet, completely quiet games? Um, some clubs we've seen have actually taken the step uh, and doing that, and I don't think that the atmosphere has actually changed. Uh, but like many of, of, of these Ulrich groups, they even have, they, they get so much from the clubs. They have their own rooms in the stadium where they can put their stuff, their flags and everything. They have, uh, they get help to for going to away games, they get tickets, and there, there is a lot of, of collaboration. And there is, I don't know, I, like, for instance, I did this article several, several years ago now. I don't know how much has changed. But it's been like in Spain, the kind of thing that if no one kind of talks about it, we can just put it under the rug and move on because we want the atmosphere. Um, so I think it's a, it's a deep, kind of a deep problems in, in the culture and in, in the clubs uh, that they are afraid of, of losing something that they think is really, really important. But the fact is that I'd rather have no atmosphere at the games, to be honest. Than, than having these kind of things. And I don't think the atmosphere would be that much affected. I think well, this, what you said um, about the social media attention to it, forcing some kind of action on it, is more so true now than ever because <laughs> lest we forget that the president of La Liga has some pretty questionable uh, past associations in his uh, wardrobe too, but ultimately La Liga is now trying to be become more and more internationalized. They've launched a standalone channel in the UK, for example. I think it runs in the US and things like that. So in a way, if this kind of horrible thing was going to happen, it's best it happens now because the fact that La Liga's come out so quickly and said, oh no, we're going to do something about this. We're going to find people and we're going to prosecute them and we're going to push for part of the stadium to be closed, which by the way is unthinkable. This never happens in Spain, that kind of reaction to something like this. I don't think that's because La Liga suddenly got a big heart and really wants to deal with this issue. I think the reality is that for business it's bad it looks really bad at this particular moment in time so for the first time actually I'm, I'm fairly optimistic that this might be in some way dealt with and it might set a precedent and that's what we can only hope for i think that that some kind of standard is set that makes people realize that this is not a way to behave and then the clubs have to follow up to that standard and live up to it as well so anyway we will no doubt keep people updated with whatever happens uh, if and when it does and with social media and every, all that attention that these things are getting and how how it's spreading in a way it didn't do before i think it's much more difficult for clubs to just ignore it and put it under the rug and and instead i think and hope uh, that when these situations happen that we, we there's going to be actions like there are now and we're going to see less and less of it and that clubs are going to be more afraid of it actually happening after stadiums because there is consequences and it, it is not not a good look for your club in any way yeah it's i mean not the most positive way to to wrap up the podcast but it's something that we have to talk about if and when it happens um one thing i would say though that next week we have something kind of cool happening we have an all dane encounter in la liga to look forward to because uh, your beloved celta de vigo will play against uh, the club that we spent quite a lot talking about valencia that is also one Dane playing against his old club. Yeah, well, that's the thing. We, we've mentioned this briefly in the on the podcast before, but Daniel Vass is still, to me, very much associated with Celta Vigo because of uh, the, his breakthrough in Spain there and that what made him really stand out as a player was his uh, game as a midfielder there. And actually, if Sisto plays, then I don't know, you have this better than me, but that means that he might actually come into direct uh, confrontation with Vass at some point in the game, right? It is very, very likely. Depending now on, on how... If Sisto gets to play or if he, yeah, he well, is. 
watch this space. Yeah. It, it will be interesting to see how, how it involves with, with Sister at Salta. There'll be a lot to get stuck into next week then with regards to that and the bunch of other big games, not least the Madrid derby that's coming up. But until then, I think that is us for an action-packed edition of Bombatho, I think. We've had a lot this we, week. We had and a lot of uh, Scandi talk this weekend. Yeah. Like That actually was, the, like the, I think, the two talks in one way of, of the weekend or at least of the Sunday was uh, Sisto and Alexander Isak so, so that was good for, for our podcast Long live Alexander Isak <laughs> Long live Alexander Isak Viva <laughs> On that note we will bid you Hey do Are you joking? Okay?